Welcome to Bill Bronchick's Real Estate Investing Podcast. Mr. Bronchick is an attorney, best-selling author, and a real estate investor with 25 years' experience. For more information and free articles and videos, visit his website at www.legalwiz.com. Today I want to talk about uh, subject to deals and why I think this is going to be a very effective strategy and opportunity for the Mark the post-COVID market. I guess it's still a COVID market. I guess, but uh, eventually will be a post-COVID market. And w- explain the uh, how this works, what the advantages and risks are, uh, how to find uh, subject to candidates, the different variations and uh, of how they work, and some of the back-end strategies that you might do once you employ this strategy. So start with a basic, you know kindergarten understanding of what is subject to. So when you transfer a property using a deed, there's always a clause in there that says this transfer is subject to, and then they list what it's subject to. So there's certain things you're taking a property subject to. You don't get everything. You get what's called fee simple ownership which is supposed to be all the rights but it's always subject to restrictions subject to zoning restrictions subject to if you're in an hoa their rules subject to maybe easements maybe utility easements across the property or a neighbor has an easements so in a deed it always says subject to and one of the things you're always taking subject to is unpaid but accrued taxes so for example you usually pay the prior year's property taxes in the spring of the following year but if you close in the middle of a year taxes have accrued for that January through middle of the year date let's say it's June 1st January 1st for June 1st property taxes have accrued but they're not due yet until the following spring so typically you're taking as a buyer subject to those accrued taxes with a proration at closing that the seller gives you so when you pay the taxes the following year you're only paying for from the closing date to the end of the year, not the whole year. Okay, when you t- when I say you take subject to, what I'm specifically referring to is subject to a mortgage lien. Typically, at a closing, a seller pays off his existing mortgage. That lien is released, and that that lien could be either a mortgage mortgage, which in mortgage states that's what they use, and in or in some states they use what's called a deed of trust. Both are liens, both are security instruments as collateral for a promissory note, which gives the lender the right to foreclose for non-payment. But both are liens against the property. You own the property, the lender has a lien. So if we don't pay off that mortgage and release that deed of trust or mortgage at closing, then the transfer is subject to unpaid taxes, zoning restrictions, et cetera, et cetera, and subject to an unpaid, unreleased mortgage lien or deed of trust lien, okay? So when you take subject to, the seller transfers property, does not pay off the existing loan, the lien stays on the property, and you're taking it subject to that lien. That's what I mean by subject to. You're taking subject to existing. Now, there may be other liens. There may be a second mortgage, a home equity line of credit. Uh, It might be subject to a judgment, an IRS lien, 
or like I said earlier, easements, um, zoning restrictions, HOA restrictions, and so on, so on and so forth. Okay, so typically when I say uh, we're taking a property subject to, I'm specifically referring to subject to the existing mortgage or deed of trust lien that has not been paid off at closing. Now, why this is going to be the preferred way to buy in the coming months is that a lot of people are going to be unable to pay their mortgage. They may not have a lot of equity, but if they have a low interest rate, and that payment on the mortgage, all in, principal, interest, taxes, insurance, PITI, is less than you could, let's say, for example, rent it for, it may be worth taking over a property with very little equity subject to the loan, maybe give the seller a little cash, and then rent it out, for example, or live in it, it you know, regardless of uh, whether it's below or above market rent, if you want to buy a house to live in, I bought one of my first houses I bought subject to uh, with $5,000 to the seller. And uh, it had a good low rate loan that I just took subject to and made payments on. It worked perfectly well as a primary residence. In fact, the more expensive the house, the harder it is to sell for the seller and the easier it is for you to buy if you're in the market to buy a home to live in there's no sense in putting 20 percent down uh if you can't qualify for fha put 20 percent down and then go qualify for a loan when you can put a minimal amount down to give seller money who can't make their payments uh take subject to the existing loan take ownership subject to the existing loan and then just make their payments now if you don't make the payments, you know, taking subject to is easy. It's just a deed. The deed transfers ownership and you don't pay off the loan. But if you don't pay the loan, the lender can still foreclose it. Ownership changes, but the lien remains. People often misunderstand uh, what a mortgage lien is or how ownership works. They think because there's a mortgage, they don't own the property. The bank owns the property. And that's not the way it works. In the car business, that's the way it works. In the car business, you don't get title till you pay off the loan. In the house business, you get title. You have the deed in your name recorded at the county, and the lender has a recorded lien. If you transfer ownership, the lien stays with it. The lien does not go away. Any liens that are not satisfied at closing stay with the property. But what you haven't signed is a note. The seller signed a promissory note when he bought the property or refinanced the property with his lender. You didn't sign that note, so that's not your personal obligation. But if you don't pay it, or he doesn't pay it, it's going to get foreclosed by the lender. So the lien remains the lender's um, collateral has not been impaired by transferring the property. They still have a lien. And it's going to be a good strategy because a lot of people who don't have enough equity, uh, can't make payments, maybe not even enough equity to sell with a realtor or sell fast enough with a realtor, are going to be willing to do this type of strategy because in their mind, they're just giving up and saying, well, let, I'll let the bank just take it. Some people have that mentality. And if they get to that point, it's a prime candidate for a sub two because 
you could take over the payments and save them from a foreclosure. If they go to foreclosure, their credit is destroyed. They won't be able to get a new loan for at least three or four years. They may have trouble getting an apartment, buying insurance, getting a car, because foreclosure takes a major hit. Even if they're behind in payments, you can make up a few back payments at closing, even if their foreclosure has been started, as long as it doesn't go to sale, it's not a full-blown foreclosure on their credit report. So if they were behind in payments, 30, 60, 90 days, even more, their credit has already taken a hit. But if you make up the payments at closing, that's called a cure, and then take subject to at closing you're, and make payments going forward on time, you're going to improve their credit slowly uh, but surely but certainly within a year or two uh, the late payments fade away and their credit improves substantially. Now some of the advantages of this is, as you already may have guessed is this doesn't require your personal credit to take over the property. This is not an assumption. An assumption is where you call up the seller's lender and say, hey, I'd like to buy this property and I'd like you to put me on the hook for the loan and take the seller off. That's called an assumption. An assumption requires you to qualify for the loan, which means you have to have, you know, the credit, income, debt, to uh, debt into uh, ratios to qualify for this loan. And unless you're going to live in it, if it was an owner-occupied loan and you wanted to, to assume it as a an investor, probably is not going to be an option for this lender because it's a different loan category and you won't be able to assume it. So it doesn't require any credit because you're not calling the bank and asking permission. Why, why you would want to do that is beyond me. You, to be on the hook for the note as if you signed it originally um, doesn't work to your advantage. works to the seller's advantage because it takes him off the hook. But if the seller was going to walk anyway, the seller doesn't seem too concerned with his credit anyway. Um, just FYI, though, it is going to stay on the seller's credit report because the bank is still reporting payments on the seller's credit. And when the seller goes to get another loan, it's going to show up as an obligation. We'll talk a little later how to deal with that obligation if the seller needs to get a new loan. Um, so it's not on your credit as a buyer. If you make a late payment, it's not on your credit. I don't suggest you make late payments because it affects the seller. But if, you know, God forbid, you get in a situation where you can't make the payments, it's not going to affect your credit. Uh, another advantage is it's usually very little cash out of pocket. If the seller owes 90 or 95% loan to value, uh, either because he refinanced it or the property went down in value, or he bought an FHA and only put 3% down, whatever it is. If there's very little equity, it's going to require very little cash out of your pocket. So that's a good one. Another benefit, which is often overlooked, is the loan amortization. So if the seller bought the property seven years ago, he's only got 23 years left on his 30-year mortgage. That means you only have 23 years left on the mortgage you're taking subject to, so the payments you're making are starting to clip away at principal. You know, a 30-year loan is front-loaded with interest. So the first five or 10 years is almost all interest, very little principal pay down. Now, if you're seven years in, you're starting to actually pay down some principal. Also, you're going to get a lower interest rate if you're buying it as an investor. It's a better interest rate than you'd get if you got a loan through a bank. 
typically investors pay a point or so, sometimes more than a point, higher than someone who's buying a property as a principal residence. So if this loan was given to the seller as a principal residence, it's going to be a lower interest rate than if you wanted to go get a loan to buy the property yourself as an investor. So that's good. And the most important thing is there's no liability on default. The seller signed a promissory note. The seller signed a security instrument, either a mortgage or deed of trust, that pledged its property as collateral and the lender has a lien. If the payments are not paid for whatever reason by you, which I don't recommend you take a subject to and don't pay. I'll tell you in a moment what I do recommend you do if you can't pay. But if, God forbid, the market went to a complete crash and or you had a complete crash of financial situation in your life and you were unable to pay the note, the lender can't, number one, affect your credit because you didn't sign the note. And also, if it goes to foreclosure sale and there's a deficiency, the lender can't come after you either because, again, you didn't sign the note. Now, this is going to affect the seller and the seller's credit, and if it's a deficiency, uh, affect the, the seller for a potential deficiency judgment collection. That's a deficiency is when if 250 is owed on the loan and the, the, the lender thought the property was only worth 200 and then only subsequently bid 200 and nobody bid above the lender, there's a 50 deficiency which the lender can sue the borrower for. Uh, in some states, that's prohibited. Um, on primary residences, but if not, the lender can go after a deficiency from the prior owner slash borrower. Um, if for some reason you took a property subject to and you couldn't pay it for whatever reason, whether the property was bad, the neighborhood went bad, or you had a situation on the market, I, I suggest you just give it back to the seller. Call them up and give it back. It's not going to be pretty if you don't pay. Now remember, the lender can't come after you, but the seller could sue you, you know, for not paying his loan that you promised you were going to pay. So be careful about that. Also, in most states, it is actually a crime, a crime to do what's called equity skimming. What is equity skimming? Equity skimming is when you take subject to and you don't make the payments and you collect rent. So if you buy a property subject to and you can't make the payments don't take rent that could be illegal check the state statute in your state you know in colorado it's two years uh from the time you bought bought it subject to you know and, and by the way this is not illegal on your own loan if you bought a property you took a loan out on it in your own name and collected rent and didn't pay your lender that's not illegal it's taking somebody else's loan subject to collecting rents and not paying the mortgage. That's called equity skimming. Um, but either way, as soon as you realize you can't support this property, call the seller up. M work out something where you could give it back to them. Just, you know, sign a quit claim deed, record it back to them. And at least, you know, they're no worse off than they started. Maybe they can't pay it either, but at least you're, you're giving them the property. Because once you take subject to, the seller has no recourse. The seller can't get the property back. He's given away ownership, even though he's still liable on the note. Now, this might seem like crazy. Like, why would a seller do such a thing? He put himself in a situation where he's liable on the mortgage note, but doesn't own the property as collateral anymore. Um, and this happens all the time in divorce, believe it or not. Husband and wife on the property, co-owners, both on the mortgage. 
in the divorce, let's say the wife gets the property, so the husband quit claims his interest to the wife, and with some sort of agreement that the wife refi within two years and take the husband off the loan, and six months later she can't make the payments, the property goes into foreclosure, the husband is SOL because he can't take the property back. He has to pay the payments, but doesn't have ownership. And so this is not uncommon. Um, this is just the same thing, but, you know, between unrelated parties. So uh, obviously it goes without saying that if you're the seller, you should probably never do this if it's your loan. Um, uh, do a subject too, because if the buyer doesn't pay, you're SOL, you have no ownership in the property. What you can do, and if the seller... Um, does balk at the idea of, hey, I'm giving you my property, and if you don't pay, I don't own it, and I'm liable. What you can give the seller is a lien against the property. Usually it'll be a second lien behind the mortgage that basically says if you, the buyer, don't make the seller's payments subject to, the seller can commence foreclosure proceedings to get the property back. Nonetheless, I think you, sh as the buyer, should just give the property back if you can't make the payments. I'll tell you a quick story. I had a situation where um, one of my students did a deal where he bought two condos subject to from a seller. Gave him just a couple of thousand each for each one, took over the payments, rented it out. You know, it was a good deal. Um, a couple of years later, that student calls me up and says, hey, I'm moving to Florida. You remember those condos? Do you want them? And I said, well, what do you want? He goes, well, I'll deed them to you subject to the loan I took subject to, um, and you give me a couple of grand for each one that I paid the seller, and you can rent them out. So I said, okay, fine. Now, I never spoke to the original owner, never made him any promises, so I never uh, uh, obligated myself for those payments, whereas the student, Mitch, did. So I had the properties about five years, and the market started to turn. This was around 2000 five when the condo market was bad um rentals were bad because remember everybody could get a loan with no credit and nothing down and banks were giving out money so the, the rental market was terrible um vacancy rates hit close to 15 percent in denver and i couldn't even rent these things to cover the payment and then there was a flood and there was mold and all kinds of problems and then the hoa dues went up and this was a loser so i you know, I could have just walked away. I only paid a few thousand dollars for each one. Uh, I'm not liable on the note. I didn't make the payment, but I did the right thing. And I called up the previous owner and said, you don't know me. You know Mitch. You sold to Mitch. Mitch sold to me. I didn't promise to make these payments, but what I'm doing here is I'm offering to give them back to you. And he said, I don't want them. I said, I understand you don't want them, but if you don't take them and do something and try to sell them or work something out with your lender, do a short sale, do something, um, then the lender's going to foreclose because I'm, I'm not going to make the payments anymore. I never obligated myself to you. Um, someone else did. So I suggest you take them back. And he says, you don't hear me. I don't want them. Under any circumstances, don't give them to me. Now, I, I could just sign two quick claim deeds and record them, but actually, um, a deed requires acceptance, <laughs> and he wasn't accepting them. Um, I have since put in my subject to agreement that at any time, me as the buyer can deed it back, and you must accept it, um, which was what I would have done there is just deeded it back and said good luck. 
But since he wasn't willing to accept them, I couldn't just deed them back to him. It doesn't require his signature. I could have just signed a quit claim deed saying I deed the property from my company to back to you, original owner, and record them. But, you know, I wasn't going to do it against his uh, permission. So I wrote him a letter and I said, you know, as we discussed by phone, uh, I don't want them. I'm giving them to you. I'm offering to ha do the right thing. If you don't pay it, here's all the bad things that are going to happen. And uh, you know what? He didn't respond and the lender foreclosed them. Uh, I tried to do the right thing, uh, but he didn't want them. Now, I have no legal or moral obligation here because I never dealt with him originally. If I, if I was the original guy, uh, it would be different. So I've since put in my subject to contract that at any time I don't like this deal anymore, I get to deed it back to you and you and you get and you must take it. I can just go record a deed, which is very advantageous. So just the bottom line is if you get in a situation where you can't pay the seller's mortgage you took subject to, just give it back. Just call them up and try to work it out. Uh, it's the right thing to do. All right. So number four. Um, topic on this is the risks. What are the risks? We talk about all the good things. No credit, little, little cash, you're not liable for the loan, loan amortization, lower interest rate. Um, the risk is the mortgage or deed of trust is going to almost universally contain a restriction known as an acceleration, also known as a due on sale provision. And what that says generally is if the seller slash borrower transfers any part of the property or any interest in the property, then the lender may at its option call all sums due and payable, meaning they can accelerate the loan and say, you've got 30 days to pay it off, pay it off now, or we'll foreclose. Now, the clause, first of all, two things to point out. It says, if you transfer the property or any interest therein, there are lots of interests less than an outright deed transfer. Uh, a lease is an interest in real estate. A giving someone a second lien, you know, for a, like a HELOC is an interest. Uh, giving someone an easement across your property, that's an interest. So technically, any of those things would trigger a due on sale. Lender usually doesn't care unless it's an outright transfer of title, nor do they usually find out about it. So um, federal law has exceptions carved out where a lender may not may not enforce that due on sale and one of them is you could lease a property for up to three years because that's an interest technically if there wasn't that exception if you leased your property for six months you'd be triggering the due on sale and the lender could call it so they said you could lease a property for up to three years so if you've given a lease on your property for five years to anyone technically the lender can call your loan due although it's minutely likely that it would happen. Um, a lease of any term containing an option to purchase, so a lease with option, that triggers a due on sale. Again, lender's not going to find out, nor are they going to care. The reality is with this due on sale thing, it's called a due on sale, but that's not really an accurate description because the clause reads, if any interest is transferred, the lender may, at its option, call all sums due and payable. So it's not automatic that you transfer an interest and then it's due. It's due if the lender chooses to exercise that option. So it's their call. And in 99.9% .9 of cases, the lender is not going to. So why is this even a discussion? Well, it's somewhat academic, but if we look at the history of this, 
back in the late 70s, early 80s, when interest rates ballooned to 14%, 15% on residential properties, if you transferred your property with a 5% loan to your friend and interest rates in the market were 14 the lender's going to balk at that because they're losing money. They've got money out at five when they should be having it lent out at 14. So they're going to accelerate that loan and try to refinance the buyer at 14%. Now, interest rates since the early 90s have been fairly flat. You know, they, they were probably uh, six and change then and now floating you know, somewhere around three to four percent on residential properties. So if, if you've got a seller who's got a loan at four percent and you take subject two and the market interest rate for mortgages is three and a half, why would a lender enforce a due on sale when there's no profit in it, especially when the loan is being paid, especially if the seller was in default of three or four payments and you made up those payments. What is the lender going to do now? Say, well, thanks for making up the payments. Now we're going to call it due. Of course not. They're not going to do that. They really don't care. Um, a few exceptions to that, a very few exceptions. If it was a small credit union, they might make a stink. Uh, big banks don't care. The only exception that I've found where they universally will call it, one is reverse mortgages because reverse mortgages are due when the borrower leaves the home even if they haven't sold it. So they'll call that due. Um, and definitely on the death of the borrower for sure. The other one is a state-sponsored um, housing program loan. So, for example, in Colorado, we have something called CHAFA, the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority. CHAFA will lend the 3.5% that's required down on an FHA loan. So it's sort of a, it's an FHA loan that is co-sponsored by a state housing agency who lends the 3.5% down and, and services the loan. Those loans, I've found, if they find out, they will call them. And the reason is being is there's limited funds they have for a specific low-income purpose, and they don't want other people taking over those loans. So they will call those loans. I've found if you see a state-sponsored FHA loan, or if you see any FHA loan, make sure you check to see there's no state-sponsored you know, uh, program on there that they may, may call it. Um, and that's about all I've seen in terms of banks calling loans, and I've done well over a thousand transactions as an attorney, as an investor, as I also own an escrow company. So I've done closings, you know, that that work around a due on sale. And, and I've seen only two cases out of, I'm going to guess, 1,500 closings where a lender made a stink. And that's those are pretty good odds. I mean, is it a risk? Yes. Is it a big one? No. Are there lots of risks in real estate? Yes. Are there lots of risks that are bigger than this one? Yes. So it's risk reward. If you if you take over someone's property subject to and you give them a few thousand dollars and you rent it out for two years and you've made your money back and then the lender says, wait a minute, we're going to accelerate that loan. What have you done? What have you lost? Uh, and by the way, what's the way to fix it? Deed it back to the seller. That fixes the problem deed it back to the seller. Technically, any one of you listening who have transferred your property to a corporation or LLC have also triggered the due on sale. And of course, as you know, the lender doesn't make a stink. They really don't care as long as it's being paid. But just an FYI. Um, the other risk is the seller's remorse. 
Um, I've heard of a handful of cases where a seller comes back many years later and says, wait a minute, that's my property, uh, even though he deeded it away at a closing. Um, I think good disclosures in your purchase contract and then an affidavit of understanding at closing where they clearly understand that it's not their property, they're giving up their equity, but it remains on their credit report. It's still their primary obligation. If you don't pay it as the buyer, it could affect them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I have a good set of disclosures in the uh, subject to and creative real estate financing courses that you can use um, to have the seller sign at closing and use my subject to contract as well. Okay. So, you know, if it does happen, I'll, I'll tell you a story real quick. I had a client who took subject to, and he didn't do all those things. He just, you know, literally had the seller sign a deed and recorded it. Um, I mean, that's legal, but it's foolish. You should do a purchase contract with disclosures and then do a title search and, you know, the usual you would do with a closing. Um, and a lot of title companies, by the way, won't do subject to closings. Uh, they think it's their obligation to notify the lender, and it's not. So don't be surprised if you go to a title company and they won't do it. Some title companies will do it, but they won't do it on an FHA or VA loan because they think it's some sort of um, blacklist that they're going to get on. There's a, been a rumor been running around since ever since I can remember practicing law in the early 90s that if a title company takes... Uh, does a closing where the buyer is taking subject to an FHA loan and FHA finds out they'll ban them from being able to do HUD closings and that's just not true I mean I, I've been hearing that rumor for almost 30 years and I've never seen anything remotely to justify that uh, old wives tale so it's not illegal because it's a government insured loan okay um, so uh, we had a, um, a client who did a subject two. He just got a deed. That's all he did. Several years later, the seller calls him up and says, hey, this is still on my credit report. I'm trying to get a new loan. Uh, when are you paying this off? And obviously, he didn't explain it very well, my client. And my client said, well, I'm not paying it off. I never promised I would, which is true, but not a good way to handle it. And basically tell, told the seller, you know, tough. So the seller didn't like this and called up his own lender and said, this buyer took the property from me and didn't pay off my loan and he refuses to pay it off. And the lender wrote a letter to my client saying, you've triggered the due on sale and we're accelerating the loan. You've got 30 days to pay it off. Okay. So client comes to me and says, what do I do? I said, first of all, knucklehead, that's not the way you deal with a disgruntled customer. You should have dealt with him nicer and maybe explained it to him and maybe offered him something for his, you know, uh, cooperation. Uh, maybe give him a couple of thousand dollars for him to shut up. Because if you're now you got to go refinance it or sell it and it's going to cost you money. So my client says, well, I need some more time. A month is not enough time. I said, okay, I'll write a letter to the lender and ask them for more time. So I write a letter to the lender. And I say, we got your letter, and you're right, the property was transferred, and, you know, there is a due on sale, you're correct, but you've given 30 days for my client to pay it off, which is unreasonable, we'd like six months to pay it off. Okay, not an unreasonable request. Don't hear anything. Several weeks go by, and I told my client, you better do something. So my client sells the property, pays off the loan. Six months later, I get a letter back from the lender's attorney 
And the answer is no. We won't give you six months. <laughs> it's a true story. So, you know, that's the kind of, uh, you know, non-intelligence inside of bank walls that we're dealing with. So it's not a crime. There's no criminal act. It's a contract between actually not you and the bank, but the seller and the bank. If anyone violated that contract, it was the seller, not you. Okay, so that gives the lender the right, if they choose to accelerate the loan, which in 99.9% .9 of cases, they simply don't. So, you know, it depends what your back-end strategy is. So let's talk about that. If you're going to just rent it out, um, and you could rent it for more than the payment, and you gave the seller a small amount of money, what's your risk? The risk is it gets called and you lose your rental unless there's enough equity to refi it or sell it. You could fix the property up and resell it, which the loan will be paid off within months, which is a non-issue. Um, you could use this as a short-term strategy. So let's say it's worth 400 and they owe 300 You could take subject to, and after a year, you've owned the property a year, you could refi that mortgage because you have seasoning at 75 to 80% loan-to-value and pay off the seller's loan. So it could be a short-term subject, too. Um, you could sell it on a lease with options. So your tenant is going to buy it within a couple of years, and then you'll pay off the seller's loan, and, you know, no harm, no foul. Uh, so it all depends on what your long-term strategy is and how much money you have in the deal, which will determine your risk as an investor. Um, next, how to find subject to candidates. You're not going to go on Craigslist and find uh, ads that say, take my property subject to. <laughs> You're not going to find that. So we're going to have to look for people who are willing to do that. Uh, foreclosure is an obvious one. So in a foreclosure situation, you'd have to make up the back payments, maybe give the seller a little walking cash and then take subject to it closing. And by the way, you don't make up the back payments until closing. It's all done at once. You bring money to the table, the title company or attorney closing it will wire in the money to cure it and the seller gets their money and you get the deed all at once. You could buy lists of people who are 30, 60, 90 days late on their mortgage, but not in foreclosure yet. That's an, an available list and that's uh, better because once they've hit foreclosure, they could be they could be a year behind, and it, it's a lot of payments to make up. Um, if you see ads on Craigslist and such for sale or lease, usually that shows someone who wants to get rid of it but can't carry the payments any longer. Uh, that could be a good potential person. So what you're looking for is a situation where you get a seller who typically – uh, has no equity, although we'll talk about what happens if they have equity in a moment. Um, they've got a low payment, low interest rate loan, and the payment is less than you could rent it for on the market, and it's a potential rental or rent-to-own property for you. The seller uh, has the inability to make up the back payments or the inability to make payments going forward, and has usually has a defeatist attitude like, well, there's nothing I can do. If I don't solve this problem, I'm just going to walk and let it go to the bank. So that's your typical person. Someone who's very credit conscious, who just has a house problem, 
is not likely going to let you take their property subject to the existing loan because it could damage their credit if you don't pay. So that type of person might be more open to something like a lease with option, not just giving you the property subject to the loan. Because, you know, you and I wouldn't do that if we were in a situation where we were concerned about our credit and do and want to, and, you know, we're leery about giving our property away with no recourse. Although people in, in like I said, in divorce do it all the time. It's crazy. The divorce attorneys don't know real estate, apparently. Um, some variations, though. So typical deal is going to be little or no equity. So you give the seller maybe a little cash or no cash. Take over the payment subject to. If they're behind in payments, make up the payments. Take it subject to. The second scenario would be, let's say they have a lot of equity. Let's say they have tons of equity. Let's say that it's worth 300 and they owe 200 and it's a 4% loan. Now, the seller's not going to take five grand and walk on 100 grand in equity, probably. And, of course, you don't want to give 100 grand for 100 grand in equity. If you gave 50 grand for the 100 grand in equity, that would be a pretty good deal. But if they're not willing to take that big a discount on their equity, you could do the following. Let's say it's worth 300. Let's say they owe 200. And let's say you agreed on a price of 270. Okay, a little bit of a discount. You could give the seller 20 at closing, take subject to the first of 200, and give the seller a note and second lien against the property for the other 50. So you could take subject to a first and give a seller a note and lien, mortgage or deed of trust, depending on the state of the property, for the equity in the property. Maybe with some interest, maybe with payments, maybe with no payments, maybe do when you resell or refi in three or five years. You know, it's all negotiable. So if there is equity, you don't have to give them cash for all their equity unless it's a substantial discount. You could give them a note and some cash. Another common scenario, which one of my favorites is, same $300,000 house, they owe 200 on a first at 4%. They owe 150 on a second at 8%. Okay, so they've got a, a big honking second mortgage that's a terrible interest rate. It's financed for way more than the property's worth. You got 200 first, 150 second, that's 350 on a $300,000 property. Now, if the seller is behind on their first and second, at least a payment or two, what you can do is make a deal where you go to the second lien holder because if the first is in default it's going to foreclose eventually and wipe out the second and the second is in an upside down position anyway go to the second and say i'll give you x dollars in satisfaction of the whole thing so we're going to short the second from 150 down to maybe 20. okay and you're probably thinking Wow, they're going to take 20 instead of 150? Yes, they will. They're in second position and they're upside down. So you have a contract with the seller that says, I'm going to take subject to your 200 first. If I can negotiate the second on a short to my satisfaction, and if I do, then I'm going to take subject to the first of 200, pay off your second at a discount of just 20,000 and now you've got a property worth 300 
that you've paid a total of 224, 20 cash to the second, 200 subject to. And even in that scenario, if you got that second even lower, maybe down to 10, you could give the seller a few grand at closing as well. That's if the lien holder allowed it. Sometimes when lenders take short sales, they don't want the borrower to get any money. Okay, so to review that again, a property worth 300, a first mortgage of 200, a second mortgage of 150, both in default. If they're current, it's hard to negotiate. So if they're both behind in payments, you're going to go take subject to the first of 200, pay off the second at a short of from 150 down to 20, and then at closing, you take title to the property subject to a first of 220 grand out of pocket. And that's a pretty darn good deal. So now, that's a, a, a list, by the way, you can buy um, consumer data leads, consumerdataleads.com sells that list. And you could dial it in any way you want. You say, within this zip code, show me properties where the first mortgage is no more than 70% or 75% that has a second mortgage that is in default. You can actually buy a list that, that that's specific. So a lot of other variations, but... Um, you know, we only have limited time on this discussion to to, to do that. But um, just to review, what is a subject to? We said subject to was buying a property without paying off an existing mortgage. Uh, it is the preferred way to buy because it doesn't require you to qualify. It usually requires little cash. You have loan amortization on an existing loan a lower interest rate than you can get it as an investor, and no personal liability, not on your credit report, okay? Um, some of the risks include the lender may be calling a due on sale, not likely, more likely a seller's remorse coming back later and saying that was my property or, you know, hey, it's still on my credit. And by the way, can the seller get a new loan with an existing loan on his credit report that you've taken over? And the answer is generally yes. So let's say, for example, the payment you took over from the seller, the mortgage payment was, let's say, an even number, 1000 a month. The seller goes to get another mortgage. The lender is going to pull his credit report and say, what about this other mortgage you have here? What's the story with that? Okay, because the seller is not going to report that he owns the property because he doesn't. But he's got a, this obligation on his credit report. Now, if he explains to the new lender the transaction he did with you. Is there on, honor amongst thieves? Is the new lender going to tell the old lender and rat him out? No. They're going to treat it one of two ways. The fact that somebody else is paying their $1,000 a month can either be looked at by a new lender one of two ways. One, as a rental. So your payment of his $1,000 payment is, quote, rent. And what do lenders do with rent? They discount it by 25% for expenses. So that means you're really paying 750 of his thousand, and now the seller's uh, debt to income ratio is off by $250 a month. Maybe or maybe not kills his chances for a new loan. I'd say more than likely not. Best case scenario, if it's been at least a year and 
the underwriter for the new lender looks at this and says, well, he doesn't own the property anymore. It's still his primary obligation, but someone else has agreed to take it over. They've been paying it for more than a year, so we're just going to look at that as some sort of contingent liability and not count it negatively towards his new loan debt-to-income ratios. So I've seen it both ways, but, you know, that's usually how it works. Okay, uh, Finding subject to candidates, the best option are people in foreclosure, late on the mortgage, uh, sailor lease ads. Um, and we talked about some variations, no equity, equity, or with a first and a second that you could short a second and take subject to a first. And then the back end strategies, live in it, rent it out, fix and resell, refinance within a couple of years, sell it on a lease with option. And the last one we haven't discussed, which is my favorite, selling it on a wraparound land contract or contract for deed. This is a good way to create cash flow without being a landlord. So if you take subject to a loan of, let's go back to our example before, worth 300, shorted the second, subject to the 200 first, we owe 200 that we paid 20 to get into. We sell it for 300 with the same 20 down on a wraparound land contract. We collect the balance of 280 at 6% interest and our underlying loan is at four. There's a nice spread because you've got an incoming note 280 at 6% and an outgoing note 200 at 4%. That's several hundred dollars a month in cash flow. Um, you could find more information on that in the Creative Real Estate Financing Program uh, at LegalWiz.com. Um, so, yeah, just in summary, subject to, I uh, hope I've explained it pretty well, what it means, what the risks are, how it works, how you can use it to your advantage, and how to deal with a seller who's a potential candidate and how to find those, negotiate those and make them work for you. So I highly encourage you to engage this strategy if you have not before, and of course, learn more about it by studying the courses online. Information and free articles and videos, visit his website at www.legalwiz.com.